everybody. Welcome back to the Tipsy Ghost. We're Tipsy Hosts, Sarah, Sarah, and Lindsay. Hey, guys. Hi. Hello. Poitzen, how is your scary movie list going? It turned into a watch all the movies <laughs> list. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, I'm not mad I, about that. I think I'm over halfway done with your guys' yeah. recommendations. Yeah. Ooh, you've made a pretty good um, dent in that. Yes. I have, so far this year, still the beginning of April currently you're listening to this at the end of april but it's currently the beginning of april and i'm up to 151 movies that wow that is amazing that is amazing that's definitely more movies than i've seen this year <laughs> have you guys seen the most recent Candyman? i was just thinking about that before no. we started recording this no i uh want to i've seen the original but no it's gory don't watch it around kids okay um <laughs> i don't watch most of these movies <laughs> That we recommend around my children. Listen, I don't know your life. Lizzie, that sounds judgy. My, my kid watches it with me. Listen, kids. Okay, my kids are five. Yes. Kids, we're going to watch it, okay? <laughs> Be quiet. Mommy's watching Killer Clowns. My kid's always been into horror movies. I don't know if that surprises you at all, but no. proceed. Okay. I liked it. I I really liked it. Okay, and plus, good. The, the director kind of just took a little spin on it that I appreciated. Okay. And then, have you seen Old? No, M. Night Shyamalan. I have not, but I saw it advertised. No, but I like I like M. Night Shyamalan. Is it out? Yes, I watched it somewhere. I don't know if I watched it on Redbox or if it's out out to watch. Okay, it's out of theaters. Like streaming is what I meant. Not sure. Okay, but it got points taken away because a dog dies, but it dies of natural causes, so it's fine. Okay, because it was old. Yes. I get it. So, you know, like the premise behind the movie. Yes, yes. They age fast. They, oh. They go to a beach where it's like this remote, remote beach <laughs> that has these mineral properties that kind of speed up your cells. Oh. And so, you age. Well, that sounds horrible. Yeah. You age a year and 15 minutes or something like that. I don't remember. But it was, it was pretty good. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll have to watch that. Don't like to think about aging faster. I don't either, but I like M. Night Shyamalan. I do too. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Okay. There's just, there's so many movies that I like. And I, I wish I should have done this in the beginning and just taken a rating system with me and just mm. implemented it. I, the only thing I have done is if I really hate the movie, it gets two thumbs down. And if I just am not a fan, it gets one thumbs down. And only a few of them have gotten that. That's kind of like helpful. It. Thumbs up and thumbs ups? If I like it, it gets no comment. Oh, okay. That's a very <laughs> pessimistic rating scale. I mean, most things I like, so. Either you suck or you're just neutral. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Good to know. Yes. I've not seen old, but I did watch You Are Not My Mother. Okay. Which. It's not like Dr. Seuss's Are You My Mother? I don't think so. <laughs> or Netflix's I Am Mother? Uh, no. I don't know that one either, but it is none of the above. Okay. Yeah. Um, I was trying to explain this earlier, but it's a little bit tricky to describe. It's kind of like witchy, kind of folklore, kind of creaturey. I appreciated it. It's a different spin on a horror movie here. So I did have to rent it on Prime for like six bucks, which I was like, six dollars. Mm-hmm. I know, that man. Is an expensive rent. I bet you if you wait a little bit longer, it'll come down. But it was it was a good rent. Just I like how snobby it. we are for like six dollars. I know. Listen, I contemplated. I was like, ugh. But man, I just. I really liked that one. It was uh, wasn't necessarily super sp- scary, but mm-hmm. it was creepy, and a lot of the imagery is like stuck in my mind. So they did a nice job with that. I watched The Puppet Master. Yes, why I watched that? I think what was what was it about? 
It's based in England and it's about a con man and it's a good true crime because like there's no death, there's no murders, but he like just manipulates and cons all these people. Like he kept these women captive for like 10 years. Yes. Okay. Yes. He was I like remember a spy this. with yeah. MI6 and they had to stay safe. So he yes. like, where they had no contact with their families for 10 years. Okay. I remember. Um, And so it's really good because like he goes to prison, but then he gets out. He didn't serve very much time. And he's like conning another woman now. And she ran away with him and they don't know where they are. And it's her children, her ex-husband who are like doing this documentary. And they're like, we haven't heard from her in seven years. And so it's like crazy because it's still ongoing. But it's interesting. It was interesting. Just like mind control, like kind of culty brainwashing. Yeah, for sure. But, like, no death. So, if you want, like, a lighthearted true crime, <laughs> I don't know. Where you don't see your family for 10 years. Where yeah. you don't, like, where no one dies. <laughs> yeah. It's still sad. It's still tragic. But for sure. Well, it's just kind of amazing the things that people believe. Definitely. Speaking of true crime. <gasps> We're going to do something. Some true crime. True, true crime. crime. That's great, you guys. Thank you. Boydson. I noticed Boydson sat out on that yeah, one. Yeah, where was your singing? Oh, um, that was hurtful. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Anyway, true crime. True crime. Here um, we are. Are you going to spin? I am going to spin. Okay. Sound effects are back. It's Sarah. Yay. Yay. <laughs> we couldn't see. She didn't show it to us. <laughs> oh, sorry. It's no, okay. It's totally That's fine. Why there was a delay. The there. suspense. All right, we are going to go way back to the early 1920s in rural southern, you guessed it, my favorite place. <laughs> I didn't have time to guess, but yes. <laughs> I didn't guess it. Yes. <laughs> Iowa. Uh, Germany. Germany, my favorite oh, place. I was thinking haunted places. <laughs> Deutschland. <laughs> it is Deutschland, indeed. The roaring 20s in Germany. How yes. was it? Um, you know, I don't know, because we're going to go into okay. a heavy, heavily isolated area surrounded totally by forest. Uh, to a farmstead. The Black Forest? I don't know the answer to that. That's not in Germany. Oh. The um, forest? <laughs> yeah. It's a forest. <laughs> yes, it is called the forest. <laughs> this is um, near Upper Bavaria. Oh, it's, I love their cream. Yes. <laughs> I've heard they have good cream. <laughs> and their cream pies. Oh, it's Can Boston. You never, oh ever say that you love someone's no. cream again? Or cream pie. <laughs> disturbing thing I've oh ever heard. It didn't take long for us to get here, but here we are. I love their cream. cream. Yes. <laughs> I knew what you were, were going for there. <laughs> I feel like that was a double-edged sword. Like, you were also trying to be a little dirty there. No, I just really love donuts. <laughs> okay? Who doesn't love a good cream I don't like cream-filled donuts. <gasps> Not, I so I don't like jam-filled. No. Uh, I don't like either. I don't I like, like being honest. Mm, I like Bavarian cream a whole lot. Mm-mm. I like um, like a sweet cream. No, I don't like anything in my donut. I want Same. it to be a donut. Same. I don't like any filling. Yes. Absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> You're on your own there, Boydston. I don't know. You can have all the cream. <laughs> I'll always give you my cream donuts. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> all right. Back to heavily isolated uh, forest. Forest. <laughs> Bavaria. That's how we Upper got Upper Bavaria near, I almost said München. München or Munich. Oh, Munich. Okay. So we are going to go to a farm known as the Hinterkaifeck Farm. Mm. 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 I chose this special for you guys. 
just so I could say Hinterkaifeck. I love it. So the people living at the farm were a live-in maid and the Gruber family that consisted of Andreas and his wife. So his wife's name is spelled C-A-Z-I-L-I-A. But everything I listened to called her Azalea. Like maybe the sea is silent. So that's what I'm going to call her. Because fun fact, there's also a young Azalea. So there's two Azaleas there. So it was Andreas's wife, Azalea, their daughter, Victoria, and Victoria's children, Young Azalea and Joseph. 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 Yeah, probably. (laughs) You're right. Let's see. (laughs) And the winter of 1921, strange things began happening. So technically, this could have fallen into a couple of categories. Paranormal? We'll see. I want to see your take on it when we're done. The maid, she was the first one to notice strange things going on inside of the house when she was all alone. She started hearing tapping noises that sounded like they were coming from within the wall. Who does this sound like? Oh, pick me. Jeff the Mongoose. Jeff the Mongoose. I think he made his way to Upper Bavaria. I was thinking, do you remember when I did that? No, Caesar. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember when I did that true crime story a long time ago about the kid who hid in the walls? Yes, I do now remember that. That's what I thought of. My brain did not go there. It went towards Jeff the Mongoose. Yes, because he's staring at me from your water bottle. There he is. He's extra clever. Extra, extra. Reminds me of the boy. It does. Mm. Okay. That's a good movie. It is a good movie. She was hearing those tapping sounds that sound like they were coming from within the wall. Um, and then over time, she started hearing disembodied voices also and footsteps that sounded like they were coming from the attic. So her bedroom was on the second floor right under the attic. And um, she felt like she kept hearing footsteps up there, like clearly. But she told Andreas, um, and of course, he went to check it out to make sure nobody was up there just hanging out in the attic. He went up. There was... Nobody up there. It was a big open space. There's not anywhere for people to hide. So he's like, you're losing it. You're you're crazy. There's nothing there. Stop it. No mongoose. He was getting frustrated because she kept saying over and over, there's something tapping. There's something walking. So this happened for several weeks until she finally decided that the house was just haunted and she had to leave. She couldn't stay any longer. So she quit and she left. And apparently the family didn't know how to even function without a maid at the time. So they took on all the extra work that the maid was doing for themselves. So this added to a lot of the stress level in the house. And eventually, they say that the family was so stressed out and kind of like at each other's throats for everything. They were just like on edge at all times. They started hearing voices and tapping sounds within the walls as well. And they kind of wrote it off as like, well, maybe this is we're just all under the stress from all this work that we're having to do. My gosh. The horror of Can cleaning you your own it? house. Oh yeah. my gosh. I don't know what she was doing, but obviously. That's my nightmare every day. It added a lot of stress. Um, they couldn't find though. They couldn't find where these noises were coming from or anyone or anything that was making the noises. So they just carried on as usual. Okay. They tried to ignore it, but things began to come up missing in the house. Most notably, a set of house keys. Ooh. So you can imagine in the 1920s, you probably don't have several spares of house keys. So it was probably fairly significant that you would notice at least one house key missing. And that would also make me paranoid. Someone's got my house key. Yeah, but I imagine that them being in, like... Rural. Yeah, that they probably didn't even think much of it. Like, maybe I just misplaced it. I don't know. Another strange thing that happened, one night, young Azalea went missing during the night. So she was about seven years old. The family, they searched everywhere for her, and eventually they found her wandering in the woods that were nearby. She was confused. She had no idea how she ended up there, but she was unharmed. And then they brought her back home, of course. When they got back to the house... 
they found a very strange newspaper sitting on their table. And Andreas was said to have uh, not have any idea where this paper came from. And he asked people in the town to like, do you know where this paper came from? Because it mm-hmm. wasn't in their no- local town. Nobody had any idea where this newspaper came from. A few days later, they noticed that someone tried to break into their tool shed. It looked like somebody tried to break the lock. And the way they described it was like one of those big metal locks that you'd have to like hit with a hammer or something sharp to knock it open. And nobody ever heard that breaking noise or any of that going on, but they can definitely see like marks in the lock that look like somebody was trying to break it open. So in the spring of 1922, in early March, there was a snowstorm the night before. Andreas gets up in the morning, he opens the back door, and he sees clear footprints in the snow that lead from the forest to his back door. And he notices right away, though, that there are no return footprints. So he's thinking, like, if they came to my door, they'd obviously have to turn around and go back. And that wasn't happening. They stopped at his door. So he went in, he locks the door, and he goes up and asks the family, like, were you out last night? What happened? Why do we have these footsteps? Of course, everybody's like, no, it wasn't me. I have no idea. (laughs) So he goes outside and, you know, he tries to figure out where it's coming from. He examines the perimeter of the house. He tries to pay attention to all of the areas where somebody could either get in or out, like windows, doorways, that kind of stuff. Nothing. He checks everywhere, can't find anyone or anything that would have caused these footprints. So he followed the footprints back into the forest, but they just seemed to kind of disappear. So it looked like they almost just started out of nowhere and ended at his door. It's because the aliens picked them up from that location. (laughs) Did she just say it was an alien that did this? It did. It was the alien who picked them up and dropped them off. It was transporting them. You are no longer an unbeliever. (laughs) (laughs) I said that because it's your story, and I knew that (laughs) aliens would make some kind of appearance. You said that because it was really aliens. (laughs) (laughs) All these things happening were definitely kind of strange. And so Andreas thought it was probably time to just let somebody else know, like, hey, this is going on. Like, see see if it was happening to them or, you know, what was going on. So he told the neighbor. Um, The neighbor was like, no, man, this is not happening to me. It's only you. I don't know why. But here's a rifle if you want to keep yourself safe. You didn't have a rifle before that? No. Nope. Uh, But Andreas declined the rifle. He said, no, thanks. I think I'm just paranoid and I don't know why this is happening, but I'm probably overreacting. It's fine. Newsflash. It's not fine. It it was not fine. Probably should have taken the rifle. They hired a new maid, thank God, because they couldn't figure out how to function without the maid. I was so worried about that. <laughs> Her name Were was, their floors clean? I don't know. I doubt it. What about the laundry? <laughs> also dirty. Everything was a muck. <laughs> it was just chaos everywhere. The new maid's name was Maria Baumgartner. She showed up at the house on March 31st, 1922. So that very same day, March 31st, 1922, timeline's a little bit unsure unclear about exactly what time but they knew it happened that day so what they think happened is that somehow andreas azalea victoria and young azalea were lured into the lured into the barn one by one and murdered one at a time so the killer would lure the person in and it's been reported that they were maybe like in a some sort of trance or obviously they trusted whatever was going in because again it was just one person maybe they heard something going on they went to check it out and as soon as they walked in they got hit over the head with a mattock and a mattock is looks kind of like a sledgehammer okay with a pointy end 
Okay. It looks very unpleasant. They get hit over the head with the mattock and then they fall to the ground. The killer then dragged their body and propped them up against the wall. So it looked like they were sitting there and then covered them with hay. Um, once they were finally dead, then they would move on to the next person. So they were able to tell that from timelines, but I don't know exactly when it started. Mm. This took, though, several hours. Yeah. I, I don't want to think about how long it would take for them to die from that. Yes. And sadly, they said that young Azalea didn't die right away. And she was awake for many hours after she was hit in the head. Uh, But, you know, there's still Maria and young Yosef. They were still in the house. Right. So the killer went into the home and killed little Yosef in bed and then went up to the maid's room and killed her in her sleep as well. So he really, he, I'm guessing, I don't know who it was, but they really had it out for this whole family. Like the worst first day of your job ever. Right? So it took four days for somebody to realize that they... Oh, to notice they were missing. Were missing, yeah. A repairman showed up to the house to do some work. He knocked on the front door. Nobody answered, but he really didn't need them to show him around. He could do his work without them. So he went on his way and did his work. Before that, though, he noticed that the dog was inside the house and barking at him. So he's like, hmm, okay, somebody must be home. The lights are on, the dog's in there. That's weird. When it did his work, and then when he came back, he noticed that the dog was now outside, tied up, out in, a, in, in the yard. Nothing, the dog was not harmed. No worries. Praise be. <laughs> but it was definitely like, oh, somebody must have let the dog out. I don't know. He knocked on the <laughs> door again. Who let the dogs out? Who let the dogs out? Who? 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 Um, that's where that song came from i think it it. is yeah he made it up on the spot we learned so many like origin stories here i don't know how we were just so ignorant before all this seriously god Um, (laughs) (laughs) he obviously knocks on the door again is like oh okay well clearly somebody's here and nobody answered so that was strange and he thought well maybe i should go tell somebody about this so he was the one who alerted the neighbor so the neighbor decides, well, yeah, it has been a few days since I've seen them. Maybe I'll go check on them. So he shows up, noticed that the barn door was open, went in. This Aww. fly was undone. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the barn's open. <laughs> All right. So, yes, he noticed that the barn door was indeed open. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so he went in and he found the four bodies propped up against the wall, Hmm. um, went into the house and found the remaining two bodies. He also noticed that it looked like there had been somebody recently eating and at the table and like had been in the house. Hmm. Nothing was astray. Authorities were notified and they determined that the murders happened on the 31st. Like I mentioned, however, they said somebody had probably been living in the house after they were murdered. The cows had been milked. The dog seemed to have been cared for. It was perfectly fine. And neighbors reported seeing smoke coming from the chimney over those several days. They assumed that it was a drifter, but they noticed that there was still money and valuables left around the house that were completely untouched. They're taking like a huge risk too. Because what if somebody just showed up before those four days and saw this random guy milking their cows? (laughs) Of all the activities, yes. They wouldn't ask questions or wonder. Like, he could have easily been spotted. Maybe during that time, you could just be like, hey, man, they hired me. Uh Don't go in the barn, though. (laughs) Do not go in the barn. It's bad news. All right. They interviewed townspeople and found that, turns out, a lot of people did not like Andreas. Oh, okay. I'm trying to find some motive here. But they never really did find a clear motive as to why anyone would want to murder the entire family. 
So lots of people were arrested, but no murderer was ever identified, and the case was closed in 1955. They did reopen it in 2007, but they didn't make a whole lot of progress at that time. So it was open for 30 years? Mm -hmm. They couldn't get anything done there. Darn it. I bet it was hard. And they got nothing done. (laughs) They got nothing done when they opened it again. Yeah. They couldn't make much progress on that. There was a lot of things like interference. You know, this was the early 20s. So I'm sure... I'm sure police work was a little different during that time. I don't know. I wasn't there. But they did say that the bodies had been moved several times and, like, people had been in and out of the house a whole lot. The crime so. scenes probably weren't. Oh, yeah. And, you know, since then, even from 1955 to 2007, I'm sure the whole thing changed. In fact, I'm pretty sure they burned the house and the barn down after all this happened. One interesting thing about the case that I thought I'd mention, they think – that the victims were drawn into the barn by somebody and they're making animal noises that made it seem like they were antsy or they were stirring in there. So they would draw them in one at a time to help settle the animals. They think maybe that's the only way that they could get them to come in because hmm. they weren't scared. They also noted that human screams could not be heard from the main house. So in case you're wondering why the maid never woke up, mm. nobody could hear it. But um, they can hear animal noises. I know. I Like, were they outside in the middle of the night? I have no idea. Hmm. I have no idea why they got it, lured in there. It doesn't make sense for the little girl to have been, you know, lured yeah. in there when she's... I mean, if it was late at night when she's supposed to be in bed. Right. Nobody she knows. She wouldn't be getting up to attend to the animals that late, you know? Right. That's weird. Something must have startled her enough to get up or wake up if it was during the nighttime. So just a couple possible suspects that they looked into. One was Carl Gabriel. Poor Carl. He was the husband of Victoria, who had allegedly been killed in World War One, but his body was never recovered. <gasps> Therefore, he must have been the killer. Right? Did he actually survive, or they're just theorizing? They're theorizing. Oh, okay, they don't know. Okay. <laughs> I was like, wait, he survived? TBD. <laughs> we really don't know. But his body wasn't recovered, so they're saying, well, maybe he didn't actually die. And people began to speculate he wasn't dead and that he was responsible for the murder. So think back to Joseph, right? Or Yosef. Yosef. Yosef, he was two when he died. So he was born well after Carl was killed in the war. All right. So people were like, well, who's the father? Victoria never said. So they speculated that Andreas was possibly the father. And that they had an incestuous relationship that turned into the the fathering situation. Then why would... If... Going with that theory, why would you kill the child? I don't know. Why would you kill the other child? Any of them. The right. maid. The maid just the maid. It was asleep. Really she didn't have a clue what was going on. Anyone but the father, <laughs> if that theory right. is true. So they, they looked into several suspects, but I just put down the two that I thought were most interesting. The next one was Lorenz Schlittenbauer. Mm-hmm. Schlittenbauer. Schlittenbauer. And... Lorenz, he was the neighbor. Remember the neighbor that found the bodies? Yes. All right. So obviously he's going to be a suspect because he was like the first one to go in and see him. So turns out he actually wanted to marry Victoria, but Andrea said no. Ooh. So some people thought that maybe he was the father of Yosef. He said nine. He said nine. Scandal. Yes, exactly. Thank you for translating that note for me. Thank you. (laughs) That was well done. Thank you. So yeah, they thought maybe he was the father and not Andreas. So... Who knows? But supposedly when he went to check on the family, you know, after that he was notified that they were missing, he was able to let himself into the house with a key that he had. The missing key. Hmm. Hmm. 
but they could never pin it on him. And he actually countersued for slander and won for okay. many years later. Because like I said, this went on for many, many years. So mm-hmm. and he was well known as the murder of Hinterkaifeck, but he was supposedly not. And it sounds like they didn't have anything on him other than a key. Correct. So yeah, this is one of the most well-known cases in German history. And to this day, like I've mentioned, remains unsolved. You did an unsolved? Can you believe it? I cannot. Who am I? No, I've heard of this case and I find it fascinating because yeah. it's just mystifies me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's terribly sad. Who do you think did it? I I hate to say, but I think it's probably Lorenz. If you go off with the little knowledge that they have. I think it was like a, a drifter. I think it was someone random. Maybe. Maybe. Do you think somebody was living in the attic? Yes. Mm-hmm. I do, I too. mean, that's what it makes it sound like. You know, if they hear, like, tapping in the walls and yeah. things like footsteps. that. Footsteps. Yeah. yeah. And those footsteps, those snowy footsteps that, that only weird. led to the door. Obviously, they had to get in, and they probably made their way to their little secret hiding spot. Mm-hmm. I think it was a drifter who'd been hanging out for a while. Because those two people that were... Th- you know, heavily well, speculated. Why would they kill a two-year-old and a seven-year-old? Like, innocent children. That's what gets me. That's why I think it's, like, just some drifter who just was found out and mm-hmm. had to kill everyone. Anyhow. Well, thank you for that story. I – that's – like I said, that's a great story. It's I wrote terrible. it myself. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you did wonderful. I'm going to spin. Okay. It's spinning. The wheel is spinning. It's on <laughs> – It's on it. – me. Oh, I get last. <laughs> okay, we're going to bring it local. Ooh. And talk about a deadly pharmacist. Ooh. In Kansas City? Or just America local? Kansas City. I yes. think is local. Okay. <laughs> but I see what you're saying because I was in Germany. So it like, is coming in back to the Kansas States. City, which is also in America. Yeah. Both of those answers were right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Apoteca. Huh? A pharmacy. Oh. <laughs> I was like, what What word? The apotheca. Cool. Uh, yeah. Deadly pharmacist as coined by the TV series License to Kill. Ooh. Ah. That sounds deadly. <laughs> Thank you. It sounds like murder. <laughs> Robert Courtney graduated from the School of Pharmacy at the University of Missouri, Kansas City in 1975. In 1986, he became the owner of Research Medical Tower Pharmacy right here in Kansas City, Missouri, where he had already worked for some time. While this pharmacy is physically located on the campus of Research Medical Center, several legal documents and news articles are quick to point out that there is no official affiliation between the hospital and the medical building. Just names. Okay. With that said, the location of this pharmacy was very convenient for physicians within the medical tower offices, Mm -hmm. especially because this particular location was a compounding pharmacy. Mm. So the main difference between a regular pharmacy and a compounding pharmacy is that a regular pharmacy provides commercial medications in standardized dosages, while a compounding pharmacy can customize medication based on a patient's specific needs. I did not know that. Thank you. You are welcome. (laughs) 
One of the locations he supplied medications for was the infusion clinic within Research Medical Tower, where several patients were under chemotherapy treatment by oncologist Dr. Vera Hunter. An infusion clinic is where patients can receive medication infusions intravenously. Some examples are to treat serious infections, to treat cancer, dehydration, uh, gastrointestinal diseases, or autoimmune diseases. IV. For those at home. <laughs> <laughs> IV infusions, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Courtney, who primarily mixed, uh, I was getting there, intravenous or IV drugs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> she beat you to it. Would receive an order for the patient's specific concoction, if you will, of medications, and he would prepare them and send them to be infused into the patient's bloodstream. So, as early as 1990, Courtney began purchasing pharmaceuticals on the gray market and using them to fill prescriptions at his pharmacy. Hold up. There's a gray market? What is it? Not as bad as the black market. <laughs> it's in between. That's exactly right. Yes. <laughs> Sounds <That's> amazing. <laughs> so, the gray market is when product is diverted out of the typical supply chain uh, outside the brand's permission. One example is um, when... You can like a pharmacy gets their medications from Canada mm-hmm. or Mexico. That's um, that's technically the the gray market. It's, oh. it's out of the normal supply chain. Gotcha. Okay. <clears throat> There's many issues with this, but the main issue is that the effect it can have on the patient is varied. These drugs aren't always just the same medication at a cheaper price. They can be counterfeit with concentrations much higher or much lower than normal or a different medication altogether. Well, in question, if they're coming from like Canada or Mexico, does that mean they're not FDA approved because they're international? Yep. So that's just one example. I'm sure that some medications are supplied only from other countries. But if you have a way to get it here, but it's too expensive, and so you go, you outsource it to go somewhere else, Mm -hmm. that's technically the gray market. Because they're cheaper. Because they're cheaper. Yeah. Another, this is actually prevalent these days because another thing about the gray market is saline bags, for example, normal saline. There's been a shortage a couple of times during COVID. And during the hurricane in Puerto Rico, I want to say, that was a main source of saline. And so for a while, it was very hard to come by. And so on the gray market, you have people that see these shortages coming and they build, they buy up a whole lot of the supply, almost all of it. Mm-hmm. And then they try and upcharge it to uh, hospitals, places mm-hmm. that actually really need them. That feels illegal. Well, that is illegal. Essentially. So uh, the thing about the gray market is it's things that are not right to do, but it's not as icky as like buying somebody's kidney or <laughs> that would be yes. the black market. That's the black market. Okay. Yes. Organ harvesting, black market. Got yes. it. That's where you get yeah. gray. <laughs> okay. It's not as bad as taking someone's you organs. dipping your toe in the, in the naughty water. <laughs> yes. Naughty water. naughty water. You're in the kiddie pool of the naughty water. Wading in the kiddie pool. You're in the shallow end. You got your yes. floaties on, but you're not going too deep. <laughs> you're looking at it, though. <laughs> you're thinking about it. Mm, I bet a kidney could get me a pretty penny. Exactly. <laughs> but I'm not going to do it. I'm not... <laughs> I might have been thinking about it. That's gateway thinking. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) So essentially, Courtney purchased these items in cash at an under-the-table discount, marked them up, and sold them. Around the same time, he began diluting prescriptions in order to increase his profits. Nope, that's bad. 
it gets it gets bad. He's getting to the black market. Real oh quick. yeah, he's it's not really black market, but it's it's black activity. Black it's, <laughs> naughty it's, water. It's bad. It's he is drinking. <laughs> he's drinking the naughty water. water. <laughs> he's drinking water. I like Satan's the naughty water. water. <laughs> Satan's the juice. water. Satan's juice. I'm sorry. In, I love it. In 1998, Daryl Ashley, which is, he's a sales representative for pharmaceutical giant Eli Lilly, he noticed Courtney was selling three times the amount that he had bought of the cancer drug Jimzar. And there was an internal investigation by Eli Lilly, the company that supplies that, but they didn't find anything illegal, so they just closed the investigation. Uh, Fast forward to 2001, Dr. Hunter, the oncologist in the Research Medical Tower, um, her nurses noticed that several of their patients weren't experiencing the expected side effects typically seen with chemotherapy. Hmm. They voiced their concerns to Daryl, the drug rep, the same guy that had the suspicions a few years ago, and he wondered if Dr. Hunter's patients were actually getting the full prescribed dose. After reviewing records, he discovered that Courtney appeared to be selling Jimzar for $20 per vial, less than what the drug was worth at market, thus appearing to take a substantial loss, but he was obviously making money. So he was now suspecting that he might be diluting the drugs Mm -hmm. and he wasn't the only one that thought that. Dr. Hunter was also noticing that not only were her patients suffering very mild side effects, but their conditions were not improving. Their cancer was not getting any better. She had a medication that had been supplied by Courtney tested. It was through a third party. It was um, from her own pocket. Like she just wanted to do the right thing for her patients. Yeah. And the sample contained less than one third of the drug that was prescribed. Wow. So these patients weren't even getting their full chemo doses. No, not at all. Dr. Hunter cut ties with Courtney and notified the FBI, who then brought in the FDA. They had seven more samples tested by the FDA's forensic chemistry lab, and they found that every single sample was diluted. The percentage of medication found in each sample ranged from as low as 15% to as high as only 39% Mm -hmm. of what should have been in the infusion bag. And stop me if you get to this here in a minute, but like, how does he, so you're taking out Two thirds of the medication. I'm assuming putting like saline or something in there as a filler. So then you have to, he's obviously going to put it into other vials to use that other third and the other third. Mm-hmm. And together we make three. <laughs> together we are three. <laughs> <laughs> but then, so I'm assuming that those other two vials don't have like the name brand label on there. How I picture it is you have one big vial of the cancer drug. Okay. And you, he, should take the entire vial and inject it into a bag of dilutants. So maybe like normal saline. That's your infusion. Okay. And what he does is he only takes like a little bit of it and puts that in a bag and takes a little bit more and puts it in a bag. And so for one vial of this medication, he actually charges three infusions. He's the one mixing the – I was picturing the nurses. He's the one making the medications. Yeah, so he's sending the – the bags. The, the, the bags. completed to be yeah. infused bags. Gotcha. Yep. That makes more sense. Thank you. Investigators believe that Courtney took a base dose of chemotherapy drugs and split it between three prescriptions, then sold them to oncologists for the same price as a full dose. 
So that's a big crime. Yeah. yeah. That's a problem. It is. Um, but investigators knew that they would need to establish chain of custody in order to get probable cause for an arrest. The like I- to make sure that he's doing it and it's not somebody else. Yep. Because okay. he had staff in sure. his pharmacy. Sure. It could be somebody. Anybody. It could just be human error. You mm-hmm. never know. And that's what they anticipated they would run into if they just immediately jumped to this guy is doing a terrible thing. Right. Mm-hmm. So the idea was that since they were there were other pharmacists in the building working in his pharmacy, even they decided they needed to tie any diluted drugs directly to Courtney to show he was the one diluting them. Dr. Hunter agreed to help with the sting operation where she gave several prescriptions for fictitious patients. So Courtney then mixed the drugs. He initialed the infusion bags himself, and he personally took them to Dr. Hunter's office, which is not unlike him. Um, Part of the creepy thing about this is he would mix these drugs, take them to the office, interact with these patients like, we're taking good care of you, Mm. full knowing that he wasn't helping them at all. Yeah. So he takes the the meds to Dr. Hunter's office where, unbeknownst to him, federal agents were waiting. They took the meds immediately to the FDA lab where all were found to have less than 30% of the prescribed dosage and in some cases contained no detectable chemotherapy at all. Mm. Wow. Wow. On August 13th, 2001, federal agents raided Research Medical Tower Pharmacy and told Courtney they were investigating a pharmacist and needed to get information about who prepared the chemo infusions for Dr. Hunter's patients. He said that he was the one to prepare those medications, so unwittingly confessing to Mm -hmm. diluting the drugs. Uh, On the 14th, the pharmacy was shut down, and on the 15th, Courtney turned himself in and was charged with one count of adulterating and misbranding drugs. Which is legal talk for doing bad things. To medicine, yeah. To medicine. He's in the deep end. He's in the naughty water. (laughs) Yes. Grief. Just before doing that, though, he gave $80,000 in cash and more than 100 doses of Prozac to his wife. So I think he kind of saw the writing on the wall. Mm -hmm. Word spread quickly around Kansas City uh, and the area, and people started to panic. The FBI urged anyone who had ever received chemotherapy infusions from Courtney to come forward. There was an outpouring of patients that came forward, and the evidence against Courtney just kept stacking up. So with this mounting evidence, Courtney gave investigators a list of three medications that he did dilute and a list of 34 affected patients, which I think is very interesting that he knew exactly who was... I wonder if he kept track. Affected. Yeah. And like, why? Yeah. Because one of the documentaries I'll talk about, they have family members from those that are deceased, but they also have a survivor, at least one, if not two. It's like, what, why her? Like, why do you have this survivor? But then this other person was like, no, you don't get chemo. Mm Mm-hmm. So on August 23rd, 2001, Courtney was indicted on 20 counts of tampering with and, uh, with consumer products and adulterating and misbranding drugs. Many patients and investigators wanted him charged with murder, but prosecutors believed a murder charge would be hard to prove since many patients were suffering from late-stage cancer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that. 
Also, oncology experts told the FBI there really was no way to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the diluted chemotherapy directly contributed to the patients dying. Like, is it because they didn't get chemo or is it because they just had late right. stage cancer? Late stage cancer. Would the chemo have helped? Yeah. Right. With a strong possibility of life in prison if convicted. In February of 2002, Courtney pleaded guilty to 20 federal counts of tampering and adulterating the chemotherapy drugs Taxol and Genzar. So he admitted to it because he didn't really want to roll the dice in court. He also acknowledged that he had weakened the drugs, conspired to traffic stolen drugs, and caused the filing of false Medicare claims. Prosecutors went after a plea deal thinking (laughs) it was the only way to get him to talk. Between his confessions and and investigator estimations, it said that Courtney diluted 98,000 prescriptions from 400 doctors, which were given to 4,200 patients. Man. Wow. That's a lot. Put in some work there. Definitely. Thanks. He admitted to diluting 72 different kinds of drugs, and besides chemotherapy, he admitted to diluting medications for diabetes, for patients with AIDS, as well as fertility treatments. He initially claimed to have only started diluting drugs after a few months prior to the arrest, but later admitted to doing it for his entire career, stating, whatever I could dilute, I did dilute. Over the course of his approximately 26 years as a pharmacist, he earned over $19 million, and at the time of his arrest, he had assets worth $18.7 million. Which I know pharmacists make money, but I was just gonna say they don't, they make, they don't that make that money. money, especially not like in the what eighties, nineties, right? Yeah. Early two thousands, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that answers the question of why he would do it in the first place. Sure, all comes down to money. Before his arrest, Courtney served as a deacon at Northland Cathedral at the Assemblies of God Megachurch in Kansas City. One source states that he admitted to doing the crimes to pay off a $1 million donation to the Northland Cathedral Building Fund. Another source said he began began after he divorced his first wife and paid out just under $200,000 to her, and now he was in financial trouble and he needed even more money. On December 5th, 2002, Courtney was sentenced to 30 years in federal prison. He started at a prison near Glenville, West Virginia, before being transferred to an institution near Littleton, Colorado. His earliest possible release date is on November 20th, 2027, when he will be 75. But in July 2020, he was considered for release seven years early due to COVID, needing to serve the remainder of his sentence on house arrest. In his request for early release, he cited health issues like strokes and hypertension, Um, but there were a lot of people who were not a fan of this idea, and the request was denied, with the judge stating his crimes were, quote, vastly different than was normally the case for defendants seeking compassionate release. Big drug companies like Eli Lilly and Bristol-Myers Squibb were named in several of the civil suits that followed. They both settled cases for several millions of dollars. Um, and if you're interested in more on the case, which it goes into a whole lot more detail and it's fascinating, you can reference an episode of American Greed entitled Deadly Rx for Greed, or what I watched was an episode of License to Kill entitled Deadly Pharmacist. Mm. But what I can't seem to get past is that a lot of these victims, patients, whatever you want to call them, took 
the lack of symptoms as a sign they were beating cancer. They thought that they were getting better when really the cancer continued to grow and consume them. So they thought it was like this, you know, a blessing not to have all the typical chemo symptoms, but they just weren't getting chemo and several of them died. That is, I mean, I've always heard about the pharmacist from Kansas City and I just never really knew all the details. So thank you for sharing. Mm -hmm. That also sounds eerily similar to... I almost said Dirty Doctor, but that is not right. It's Doctor Death, Death. <laughs> season two. <laughs> that dirty water. Yes, I got that out of my brain. Which have you guys listened to that whole season? Mm-hmm. No, I can't. It's very similar now to that story, although it was a physician, not a yeah, not a that one pharmacist. basically told people they had cancer when they didn't, and vice and versa treated them. Yep. Yes, yeah, but was profiting off of the medications that were given to these patients who had cancer and their families were saying the same thing. Like, well, why her? Why not? You know, like Mm -hmm. it just was sad people deciding people trust healthcare professionals. Yeah. As they should. Mm -hmm. You know, pharmacists have a lot of power. (laughs) They really do. They do. Yeah. It's fascinating. I've never heard of it. Here we are right here in Kansas city. We are. Turns out we have a lot of weird people in Kansas city. (laughs) Well, mine's not in Kansas City, but is it? It is in is Missouri. It it's in oh, Missouri. It's local. Nice, yeah. <laughs> Columbia. Mine is going to be the true story behind an urban legend, Ooh. and that has also been made into a movie. Have I seen it? I don't know. It's an old version, and Probably then there not. is a recently remade in like the early two thousand version. Okay, maybe. Okay. Should I tell you, or should we just start the story and see if you guess it? No, just start the story. Okay. Yeah. All right. So. Guess it. Janet Christman. Oh, which, of course, Janet. Uh, there we go. That gave it away. <laughs> my computer kept wanting to uh, autocorrect Christmas to Christmas, and it drove me nuts. I was like, I don't. She just went with it. I don't mean Christmas. <laughs> Janet Christmas. <laughs> Especially Santa's when I daughter. do the Christmans. <laughs> oh. <sighs> All right. So Janet Christman, she was born on March 21st in 1936 in Boonville, Missouri. Been there. I have not. <laughs> She was the eldest daughter of uh, Charles and Lulu Christman and had two younger sisters, Rita and Cheryl. So the family moved to Columbia, Missouri, and this is where the story is going to take place. Uh, they owned a restaurant and they lived on the top floor of the restaurant. Janet was described as fun-loving, cheerful, and a hard worker. Uh, so hardworking that on March 18, 1950, when she was 13 years old, there was an eighth grade party at school, but she decided that she wanted to babysit and make money instead. She's so responsible. She's a hustler. Not <laughs> a girl. So she babysat the three-year-old son of Ed and Ed and Anne ugh, <laughs> Romax <a> on the <laughs> outskirts of Columbia. So she had babysat for them before her family knew them. All was good. It was a stormy night. A dark Uh-oh. and stormy night. The wind was howling and it, there was rain and sleet. Oh, I can picture it. Wow. Spooky. So she it's gets to Halloween, the, the movie. That's Except the- this is in March. In Missouri. Yeah. All right. Every day is Halloween here. Every no, I'm Halloween. saying the movie oh. was inspired. <laughs> nope, not Halloween. Okay. All right. So Janet gets to the house around 7.30 p.m. The Romax are going to a party. Uh, the call's coming from inside the house or something like that. When the stranger calls. Scream. Yes. Oh. <laughs> you did a story on Scream. I did. <laughs> Danny Rollins, right? What did you say the movie was? Uh, I No, I just, the call's coming from the inside call's the house. The coming from inside the house. When a stranger calls. The babysitter. Urban legend. She keeps... Well, she's going to tell us. You know it. I don't know this. I don't think... So before leaving for the party, Mr. Romack, interestingly, 
showed Janet how to load, unload, and fire his shotgun just in case. Oh a thirteen-year-old. <laughs> yes. I I babysat for police officers when I was that age, and they never showed me how to use their firearms. I mean, I'm sorry. It does say that they live on the outskirts of Columbia, so maybe they're more rural. And this is the 1950s. I mean, I don't know. Um, So he placed the shotgun. That's weird. Near the front door, (laughs) he told her to turn on the porch light um, before answering the door, just in case someone came by, and told her that their three-year-old son slept with the radio on. So the weather starts getting worse. It starts hailing. Janet starts getting scared. Around 10.30 that night, the police department received a call from a teenager screaming hysterically and screamed, come quick. But the phone went dead before they could get her to say her name or her address. Because it was so late, the telephone company did not have anybody working that night, so they could not trace the call. And also back then, like technology, they probably couldn't have traced it anyways, they said, because it was such a short call. So shortly after, Anne, the mother, she calls the home from the party just to check in and see how things are going, but nobody answers the phone. She assumed that it was because it was so late, you know, maybe Janet had fallen asleep on the couch, so they went back to the party. They get home at around 1.30 in the morning. So when they get home, they find that the front windows, the blinds are completely open and the porch light is on, which they had left it off when they left. The front and the back doors were both unlocked and the side window was completely broken off. They go inside and they find Janet in a pool of blood near the living room. She Aww. had been sexually assaulted. She had a head injury that looked like multiple puncture wounds as if she was stabbed repeatedly with a pencil. Oh. She it's had a weird weapon of choice. Yeah. <laughs> Ice pick. That's not how she died, but there was multiple puncture wounds. Okay. She had defensive wounds, so she fought back. Uh-huh. Um, and there was fingernail scratches down her face. Oh. Um, of course, they run upstairs immediately for their, you know, three-year-old son, Greg, and he is fast asleep, completely unharmed with the radio on. Okay. So the cause of death was asphyxiation. Police found an electric iron cord that had been cut and was still bound around her neck. So police investigation reveals the following. There were blood smears and fingerprints in both the kitchen and the living room. So she, like I said, you know, defensive wounds, she tried to run away. Um, The landline phone was off the hook and was only a couple of feet away from her. She made the call, they think, right before she was attacked. They suspected that the murder was an inside job because the doors were unlocked um, and the crime looked like it was committed by someone familiar with the house. So there was like no forced entry. Right. Of course, dozens of suspects were interviewed. Nothing turned up. They interviewed her friends, her family, students at the school she went to. And there was one main suspect. His name is Robert Mueller. Here's the circumstantial evidence they have against him. He was friends with Ed, the father of the house. Um, They'd been friends since high school, so he knew the house well. He was an ex-Army Air Corps captain in World War II. He was known around town to carry a mechanical pencil always in his front pocket shirt. It's the damn pencil. (laughs) Well, because police were like, this is an odd yes, uh, weapon to use. Like, very, yeah. you're in the house, there's knives, there's tons of things, you know. There's a shotgun right by the front door. And he strangled her, sexually assaulted her, and stabbed her in the face with a pencil. God, I hate that. And I laugh because, like, it's such a weird... It's very bizarre. It's yeah. bizarre. And the wife of Ed uh, always... She's told police that she always felt uncomfortable around Robert and said, quote, he had evil eyes towards women. Mm, not a good sign. Ed himself testified uh, that Robert once told him that he liked Janet and knew that she was babysitting that night because he had asked her to come to his house to babysit that same night. 
but she had said she couldn't. Robert was also at the party with Ed and Anne, but left to meet a doctor for his son who was sick and was gone for two hours before coming back. Hmm. Who is leaving to meet a doctor for your kid late at night? Like Robert. around 1030 Robert. is her time of death. So. He's got his pencil ready to take notes. <laughs> and he was gone for two hours. <laughs> so Robert underwent a lie detector test and he passed it. He was questioned for hours and hours, but he never confessed. So he later left Columbia and joined the Air Force and sued the investigators for violating his civil rights during his questioning, but he lost this case. He died in 2006 at the age of 83 and never confessed to her murder. But both her parents, the Christmans and the Romax, believe that he was guilty. So here's where things get interesting. Four years earlier in Columbia, on February 5th, 1946, 20-year-old Mary Lou Jenkins was also babysitting and raped and killed by strangulation by an ironing cord, just like Janet. Her killer was later identified and sentenced to death via gas chamber. So her killer, and I'm going to put this in quotes, was Floyd Cochran, who was a mentally challenged black man. So this is the 1940s in Missouri. Did he go to MSP? It did not say where he went. We'll have to check. But basically the only things they had on him, he had killed his wife in a domestic dispute earlier. And then they questioned him repeatedly, hours and hours and hours, and he confessed. But a few hours before his execution, he recanted his confession. And after he passed, it was discovered that he was coerced under pressure to render a false confession. He's mentally challenged. Black man in Missouri in 1940. So I can easily see how that happened. So Mary Lou's case is technically considered solved because of this, but... Most people do not believe that Floyd was guilty of her murder, especially considering four years later, the exact same MO happened. Well, whenever we did our Missouri State Penitentiary episode in the history, it highlights a a handful of guys that were on death row that were executed there that they didn't actually do it. Yeah. It turns out he was in the gas chamber at Missouri State Pen. Oh, he was. Yeah, because that was like not – the gas chamber wasn't a very common thing, so Mm – I, I kind of wonder, wonder when I, yeah. you know, gas chamber, Missouri. Yeah. Well, and it fit everything that they were describing. Mm-hmm. So that's very sad. It is very sad. I mean, he did admit to killing his wife. So there's that. But But it still. said a domestic dispute. So, I mean, it could have been self-defense. Yeah. It could have been something. Right. But it sounds like he had this history. So they kind of just went after him. And he right. was yeah, I mean, obviously challenged and could not stand up to the hours of yeah. confession. Yeah. So more interesting case, Evelyn Hartley, 15 years old. She was, this is in Wisconsin, she was abducted while babysitting a 20-month-old, and this is a couple years later, in 1953. So she was asked to replace the regular babysitter when they couldn't watch the kid, and the regular one couldn't, and so her father called several times to check on her because she did not call him at a certain time that she said she would. So he ended up driving to the home, found the doors were locked, the lights were on, but when he looked in the window, there was signs of a struggle in the living room, so he broke in. Her glasses were found broken and her shoe was in the basement. And there was a window in the basement open with the screen gone. Mm. Um, There was footprints around the house and they found blood matching Evelyn around the house and the yard. But again, the toddler was upstairs asleep and completely unharmed. So some thought that our good old, I was going to say good old friend Ed, but Ed's not really our friend. No. Which Ed? Leatherface Ed. Ed Gein. Ed Gein. Ed Gein. Some thought that he was responsible because this was the time frame and the... It doesn't really seem like Ed's type. 
But she does not fit his MO. <laughs> That's where I was going. He's more of a grave digger. <laughs> yes. So the case went cold um, and she's still missing. I mean, oh, that's horrible. Assumed dead, obviously, but they never found her body. So there were several rapes of teenage girls and young women in the area of Columbia around this time. Um, Janet was the first one who, well, she wasn't the first one who died. Obviously, Mary Lou was. But the rapes all stopped once Robert left town. Hmm. One of the rape victims said that her rapist had been wearing a theatrical sort of mask to hide his face, and Robert had a hobby of making masks. Oh, what kind of hobby? <laughs> Rob, come on. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> more things that just kind of add up to it being Robert. Um, but he denied it to the day he died. So, But this all comes from er. This doesn't come from, sorry, the urban legend comes from this. And the legend is a teenage girl who's watching television at night while babysitting after the kids have been put to bed upstairs. The phone rings and the unknown caller tells her, check the children. She ignores the call, but the anonymous caller keeps calling back several times and the girl becomes increasingly frightened. Eventually, the babysitter calls the police who inform her they will trace the call. After the stranger calls again, the police return her call, telling her to leave immediately because the call is coming from inside the house. Good job, Boydson. Nailed it. She evacuates the home and the police meet her to explain that the calls were always coming from inside the house and that the prowler was calling her after killing the children upstairs. So the movie, When the Stranger Calls, When a Stranger Calls, my bad, comes from that. And it's a little flipped because in this one, the babysitters were killed and the children were left completely unharmed. I've never heard of either of those. Have you never seen the movie When a Stranger Calls? Nope. You've never heard that urban legend? I've never heard the urban legend. Never seen the movie. Wow. The movie. So I don't know when the original came out. It was probably like 70s, 80s maybe. But the remake came out. I remember seeing it in theaters in high school. So 2000s. It is good. I remember watching it in high school and being like afraid to go babysit. It's like kind of an unsolved, but like not really because I feel like everybody knows who it is. They just didn't have anything. And back in those days, you know, they took lie detector tests as proof. Right. Ugh. I hate that. All right, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in this week to our true crime episode. You can always catch us at thetipsyghost.com and find our socials linked from there or send us an email at thetipsyghost at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star rating and a great review anywhere you listen to podcasts. We really appreciate it, and it really does help. All right, guys. Thanks so much. We will catch you next week. Okay, bye. Bye. Bye.